Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Real Women's Health Podcast, now available on Apple iTunes, Alexa TuneIn, what else is it available on? Stitcher and Podbean and SoundCloud. Anyways, today I'm going to be joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Mina Thiva from Women and Infants Hospital, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, one of my former co-residents and amazing women's health advocate and expert. We're going to talk about the different methods of birth control, why you would choose one method over another, and I'm also going to break down some common misconceptions and do some myth busting. So hang tight for our contraception conversation. Why do I have this T-shaped uterus? Excellent question. The vagina is a powerful machine. A vagina is glorious. glorious. And it's entertaining and fun too. Because I know what's inside of girls like you and like me. Now it's time for the physical examination. Let's go take a look at your Volvo. Well, that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy. Your symptoms sound hormonal to me. I'd like a second opinion. This seems very questionable. Questionable. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and this is the Real Women's Health Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and you're listening to the Real Women's Health Podcast. Today on our show, I have one of my best friends from residency, Dr. Mina Thiva. Mina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kristen. I'm happy to be here. It was a real challenge getting Mina to participate in this podcast, so I hope that you enjoy it and Mina also has a good time. Okay. I think we will. <laughs> Excellent. Dr. Thiva, what is your current job? Like, where are you working? Um, so I work uh, where we did our residency at Women and Infants Hospital. I'm an attending OBGYN physician there. But there's something really special about your job, and that's that you help run an all-women's emergency room at Women and Infants Hospital, which I feel like a lot of places don't have. So tell us more about that aspect of your job. Yeah, it's pretty unique and special. We take care of women and take care of a lots of different things that they come in for, whether it's to have a baby or an emergent situation or um, any of our sick oncology patients, we handle it all. So it's exciting, can be get a little hectic, but it's definitely satisfying. Yeah, so in the women's emergency room, patients come in who may be in labor or they come in for some non-emergent situations like irregular bleeding or STD checks, which I don't know, some people may say is an emergency, which is probably true. But um, anyways, you take care of patients that come in with a wide variety of GYN or OB related issues. You also work in the clinic and see patients there, right? I do. Yep. Do you see both OB and GYN patients? Yes, I take care of both pregnant and non-pregnant patients for multiple GYN issues, whether it's just routine care, talking about birth control, or helping them figure out if they want to have a baby or not. I do it all. Yeah, so you're like a Jane of all trades. (laughs) A Jane of all vagina trades. (laughs) I've never thought of it that way, but... Okay, Mina, tell me what your favorite memory from residency is. 
Oh, wow. For all of our listeners who may not know what a residency is, I touched on this on our last podcast, but residency is when you have extra training after finishing med school, so you're already a doctor, and you're working in a hospital under the supervision of attendings, but you're a grown-up doctor, and you are specializing in your field. So for us, our residency was OBGYN, and it's four years, but you spend a lot of time in the hospital together, and so that's yes. when you really get to know people. Yes. For better, for worse. I would say one favorite memory was when we did the flash mob at graduation. (laughs) Yes, that was amazing. So for everyone who doesn't know what a flash mob is, it's the best invention ever. But I convinced all 32 of our residents to secretly learn a dance routine that we then performed at graduation, and it was a surprise. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty epic. Although hesitant at first, you're an amazing dancer. (laughs) I learned from the best. Okay, so today's topic, we are going to break down some basics about birth control or contraception. So Mina's going to help us go through the most common types of birth control. We're going to start in the least effective forms and move to the most effective forms. And then we're going to go through just a couple of myth-busting aspects and get the real tea from Dr. Thiva here. So with that, we'll get started. Let's start with the very, in my opinion, least effective form of birth control, and that's abstinence. So Dr. Thiva, tell me in your own words, is abstinence an effective form of birth control? No, it is not. (laughs) Because people have one idea and think that they're going to be 100% adherent to abstinence and things happen. Yeah, it's always better to have a backup plan because you never know what's going to happen. And abstinence-only education has been shown over and over again to not be effective. We're just going to move right past that method and move on to coitus interruptus. So Mina, tell us what that is. So coitus interruptus is a fancy terminology for the commonly known pulling out method. And this better than abstinence, but still not a perfectly effective method because you don't always know that you reliably will make it in time, so to speak. (laughs) I think any method that relies on someone else to do something, you should just try to avoid. You should really take control of your own reproductive future and not rely on someone else, no matter how convincing they can tell you they are. One time I read that actually the withdrawal method can be pretty effective, but the trick is, so apparently sperm that are still alive can hang out in the urethra even after uh, ejaculation. So if you have sex, your partner pulls out and there's still semen in the urethra and then you have sex again, like an undisclosed amount of hours later, that Mm. sperm can actually make its way to you before the next episode of needing to pull out. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. So this method probably isn't good if you're like, you know, a spontaneous kind of person. You should always have a backup plan. Yeah. So that's coitus interruptus. Now, let's move on to one of the oldest forms of birth control that maybe is the most common or that most people are aware of, and that's condoms. So what's the deal with condoms, Dr. Thiva? So there Condoms have been around, you know, forever, and I feel like that's what you get the most education about in school, and that's what they hand out in sex ed, or you can kind of always find them in jars at the doctor's (laughs) office. And they're 
they're pretty effective. You know, you do have to make sure you use one every time. And sometimes there's a little bit of laziness of not wanting to put it on. And then just be careful making sure that there's no holes or anything like that. The one thing I will say is when, as we talk about all these birth control methods, condoms do protect against STDs. So other methods that we'll talk about don't protect against STDs. They protect against pregnancy. So you have to keep that in mind. It's important to know that your partner's using the right size condom too. It's supposed to fit snug, so it's not supposed to be loose. So the other thing is condoms can also break and then that becomes a problem. If that happens, you should probably think about talking to your doctor about the morning after pill or going to the pharmacy because it's over the counter now. Um, they do protect against STDs and there's also female condoms, but I actually read that they stopped making those. Have you heard huh. about that? I honestly have not had patients that have talked to me about using female condoms, but to be honest, I haven't really seen them in the stores. I wouldn't be surprised if they stopped making them. I was working at a homeless shelter in medical school and we passed out a lot of female condoms and I remember there being women who specifically asked for them. Like that was their go-to method. Mm -hmm. It's basically like a ring that sticks to the outside of the vulva and then the condom part goes inside. So you put it on yourself before sex. But yeah. anyways, we'll have to look up whether or not they're still making them because I recently heard that they stopped making them. Okay, also, as we go through this talk, listeners, you can actually write in your questions to the Real Women's Health podcast when you go to realwomenshealth at gmail.com. So if we're talking about anything and you have questions, you can always write in and we'll answer them on our next podcast. So let's move on to probably my second favorite form of birth control, and that's oral contraceptives. Dr. Thiva, tell us about the two main like categories of OCPs or the birth control pill. So there's birth control pills that have combined estrogen and progesterone. These are hormones that our bodies make on their own, or they just have progesterone only. Within those two groups, there's probably hundreds of different types of birth control that have different combinations of different formulations of various types of progesterone and estrogen and different doses. So if one pill doesn't work for you, there's always another pill that you can go to. I feel like that's really important because yeah. when we try to counsel patients about the possibilities and benefits of oral contraceptives or the pill, they'll always say, oh, I tried the pill once and I had weight gain or yeah. I had headaches or it made me nauseated. It's like, okay, that's fine. But pills are rapidly evolving. They're becoming lower dose. They're using different types of estrogen and progesterone. And so one pill that maybe gives you a bad side effect, it may be worthwhile to try to switch to another one. So unless you have an absolute contraindication, which we'll talk about more, and that basically means some condition where you absolutely cannot take birth control pills, it may be worthwhile to try another type or another brand. There's even variability between generics and brand names. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize this until residency, but if you're using like the ortho tricycline low and then there's a generic, sometimes generics are only required to be like a certain percentage similar. And so you really can react differently to a generic as compared to a brand name. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the uh, laws surrounding generic pills in the United States, but that's also important to keep in mind. So when would you use a progesterone only pill? So a few different reasons. One, if somebody said that they did not like using the combined pill and they wanted to try something else, I would offer that to them. I would also use it in anyone who is 
continually postpartum and breastfeeding um, because the progesterone does not interfere with breast milk production. If somebody, so it's sort of tricky, but if somebody wanted to use the pills and they had a contraindication to having estrogen, which we'll talk about, then I would give them the progesterone pills as well. Okay, and what are some benefits of progesterone-only pills? Like, other than you can use them if you can't take estrogen. Like, progesterone-only pills can also be good. You take them continuously for regulating your cycle, right? But you might have some breakthrough bleeding. Yep. But they can also be used for that. And you can also do the same with the combined pills as well so that you don't have a period or you can have a period at once every three months. Yeah, so the other type is the combined birth control pills, which means it has an estrogen component, which is usually estradiol in a certain strength, and then a progesterone component, which is... Uh, there's levonogesterol, there's norethindrone. Yeah, so those are all progestins. So the combined pill has both of those in one pill. And in the olden days, they had the phased pills where like each week was a different color. And those still exist, but I'd probably, they're not my go-to when prescribing birth control pills. Most of the time we pick the ones that all have the same dose of estrogen and progesterone. And then the fourth week is a different color and it's usually a sugar pill or a placebo. And that means you don't get any hormone that week. And it's designed to give you a withdrawal bleed, which patients think is a period. So you have a period once a month. What a lot of people don't realize is that you actually, there's no medical indication for a period and it's totally okay to not have one most of the time. So when the birth control pill was actually being developed, something to do with the Catholic church approving Mm -hmm. its use, they designed it so that women would have this like fake period every month. It's actually not medically necessary. The blood doesn't like build up somewhere and not go out. It's actually the birth control pill works by keeping the lining of your uterus, which is called the endometrium really thin so you don't need a period Mm -hmm. so if you're someone who has really awful periods or really bad endometriosis you can take the continuous birth control pill which is where you just skip the fourth week what's your like go-to first line birth control pill that you prescribe dr thiva lately i've been and one thing i did learn in residency is it's not always best to start somebody on the highest dose of either of the hormones so i think we commonly prescribe sprintec because it's affordable but that actually has a higher dose of the estrogen Dial. So I've now been starting with Junel, which is another pill that has a lower dose of the estradiol, and then telling people that we can always pick something else. Yeah. Another important thing is that if you're going to take the pill, you got to try to take it at the same time every day. So that can be hard for patients who are like maybe shift workers or work at night or something. And so I tell patients to set an alarm on their phone. There's a difference between normal use and perfect use. And these methods that we're telling you about are always more effective with perfect use. And that involves trying to take it at the same time time every day. What else about birth control pills? Oh, they can help make your period lighter. Yeah, which is something you may also notice. And they can help in women who have bad acne or really Mm -hmm. painful periods. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll talk more about other uses of birth control in a minute. So the next form of birth control is the Depo-Provera shot. Tell us what's that and how does that work? The Depo-Provera shot is a form of progesterone. It's an injection that you get every three months and works as effective birth control. It does have some side effects that some people will notice. Some people do say they feel like they gain weight while they're using it, or they don't like that their periods are a little bit more irregular. So it's definitely important when we're starting patients on a new method that we tell them what to expect, that they can expect that they'll have some irregular bleeding or that they might have no bleeding, but just to be kind of okay with that and prepared. Yeah, sometimes you can have irregular bleeding in the beginning, and then that gets better with time mm-hmm. too. So sometimes we tell patients to kind of hold off on abandoning a method and kind of stick it out a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of Depo Provera is it can make your 
acne worse and that's like a common side effect but it's important to know that most women have no side effect mm -hmm. so even though we talk about these really terrible things most patients do really well on these yeah. forms and I feel like that kind of gets glossed over sometimes mm -hmm. one of the issues with Depo Provera is if you've been taking it for a long time that it can actually Depo means it kind of sticks around and slowly releases so some women may have a hard time getting pregnant for the couple of months after stopping Depo but you don't really see that with the other forms of birth control but Depo is the one that will kind of stick around and maybe give you a couple extra months where you kind of need to let it get out of your system that being said perfect use for Depo is to get it every three weeks yeah three months. I mean sorry three months <laughs> yes to get it every three months every three months yes so that's important to make sure you have that appointment every three months and the other nice thing about Depo that we didn't mention was that similar to the progesterone only pills you can receive that after you have a baby in the hospital and have a reliable source of birth control for three months, which is, you know, hard to think about all of those things when you're a brand new mom and you, it won't affect your breastfeeding. Yeah, that's super important. That's a common myth that it does, but it actually doesn't. The other form of birth control moving in the realm of more effective is the NuvaRing, but actually I've never prescribed the NuvaRing. There's like not that many women that go for this option. Yeah, I agree. I think, so essentially the NuvaRing, you have to put it inside the vagina and change it out, but some people like using it, but I, I agree with Dr. Rojas. I haven't prescribed it. Yeah, the NuvaRing, it actually sits in the vagina and not the uterus like the IUD does that we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, it's like a bendy ring that you kind of bend like a taco and place into the vagina. Yeah. I don't think And then you have to take anything. it out before sex and then yeah. take it out to have a period. Yeah. yeah and then uh, put it back in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to like really be totally fine with your anatomy, which is a good thing to be, but you also have to be totally comfortable with putting things in and out of your vagina which yes. not everyone is as good at, as facile at as other people. Yep, it's not easy. <laughs> Okay, the next option is that etonergestrel implant, which is also known as Nexplanon. So how does that work, Mina? So that also is another progesterone-only form of birth control. And so that is a small device that's about um, maybe an inch to two inches long that it goes into the arm. Um, it goes kind of, kind of goes in on your inner arm. It is effective birth control for probably up to four years. They haven't come out with all the approval yet for that, but that is effective birth control. You can, again, also have some side effects from it, mostly being that you have irregular bleeding, but it is very effective birth control. It's kind of similar to the IUDs where you set it and forget it. Just It's there and you don't have I to like think that. about set it. Set it and forget it. Yep. There's some common misconceptions. I mean, it's kind of a scary thought for some patients to have something in their arm, but it's really inert plastic and it doesn't migrate. I mean, there's these horror stories of it being placed kind of in the wrong spot mm -hmm. and moving a little bit or being hard to find, but for the most part, they're pretty easy and don't have any complications. Yeah. The other thing is if you're someone who maybe, I feel like for some of our patients in Rhode Island whose partners didn't want them to take the pill mm -hmm. or it was like a, maybe someone, you know, where the birth control option that you choose is not really 100% up to you, the next one on is a good option because they come in for the doctor's appointment and you pop it in and no one ever has to know that it's there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Which yeah. is, I feel like, a really good thing to have. Yeah. Oh, the other thing about the etanogestral implant is that it's a good option 
option for women who don't, who can't take estrogen um, mm-hmm. because it's only progestin only. So we'll talk more about that. But you can also have that placed immediately postpartum. Does mm-hmm. it affect milk production? No. Yeah. No. Also doesn't affect milk production. Yep. Okay. And now we're going to move on to my favorite form of contraception <laughs> and that's the IUD. There's a couple different kinds and they last for different numbers of years. Mina, tell us about like the most general concepts about IUDs. So the basic, so there's two different kinds. There's one that has hormones and one that doesn't have hormones. And the one that has hormones, it's also progesterone. And the other one is a copper IUD. And so they're these pretty small T-shaped devices that go into the uterus and either work by secreting hormones that keep the lining of the uterus thin and help prevent sperm migrating or the copper IUD sort of, it's always funny, like creates a hostile environment in the uterus, which is a funny concept to think. (laughs) They are also a great set it and forget it form of birth control because you get the IUD put in and whether it's five years or 10 years or potentially even longer, it works as effective birth control. Another important aspect that is the difference between copper and progestin IUDs is that copper IUDs can make your periods heavier. And if you're someone who has really painful periods, it's not a good option for you. Personally, I hate copper IUDs. I feel like patients always have an issue with them. The only time I'll recommend them if I have a patient with a history of breast cancer who needs reliable contraception Mm -hmm. through chemo because it's just copper. There's no hormone. I will sometimes recommend a progestin IUD like the Marina or the Lyletta, even if a patient has a history of breast cancer, but it's kind of like on a case by case basis. IUDs do not increase the risk of breast cancer. There was a paper that came out a year or two ago that tried to show from somewhere in Europe that tried to show an increased risk of breast cancer related to IUDs. And if you actually look at the data, it's hard to differentiate the risk of breast cancer related to the IUD versus the slightly increased risk with not having children. Women that have multiple babies in their lifetime have a slightly lower risk of breast cancer, um, whereas compared to women keeping all other factors similar, women who do not have kids or who are nulliparous, as we say. So when you're looking at data comparing hormone eluding IUDs versus women who just don't have kids, it's hard to flesh out the difference in the risk. So I want to just stress to everyone that hormone eluding intrauterine device does not increase your risk of breast cancer. But if you have a history of breast cancer, then you want to talk to your oncologist before you get one of these forms. Yeah. And that goes for everything that we're talking about today. You obviously want to talk to your doctor about it and make whatever decision is best for you based on your lifestyle based on your own body and based on your own medical issues. Yeah, I feel like the IUD is a really good option for people that are really busy who don't have time to like go to the doctor every three months or take a pill. And also a lot of women, like I can't remember the exact statistic, but maybe like 50% of women or something like that become amenorrheic, Mm -hmm. meaning they don't have periods anymore. So that can be a really good option if you're someone who has really heavy periods because you're, although you may have some irregular bleeding in the beginning, your periods start to go away. Yeah, they actually, I, I looked at this the other day and the the package insert or the data says they quote it like pretty low and I feel like it must be higher than that. They, I think they said it was like 20 to 30% but I feel like most people have amenorrhea. So. Yeah or really really light periods. Yes exactly. Yeah. And it's really really effective form of birth control too like almost as effective as a tubal or yeah. as effective as a tubal. I think it they probably a little bit a 
slight decreased percent, like 0.01, yeah. 0.02 percentage, but say like 99%. Yeah. The other benefits of an IUD, so this is also like breaking news, but IUDs are the progestin eluding ones because a little bit of that hormone gets into your abdominal cavity. It may also have, it definitely decreases the risk of ovarian cancer, which mm-hmm. I didn't realize in residency, but I read about later on. It may also decrease your risk of colorectal cancer. Mm. It also helps with endometriosis because endometriosis is when you have part of the endometrial lining or the inside of the uterus that's growing outside of the uterus and other parts of your pelvis and it can cause a lot of pain. So progestin eluding IUDs can be really helpful with that because a little bit of that progestin goes outside of the uterus locally. Okay, lastly, the most effective form of birth control is a tubal ligation. And that is when we either separate the fallopian tubes, so there's like a break in them, whether it's like through cautery or suture, or we completely remove the fallopian tubes and that's called a salpingectomy. So Mina, tell us about that. So I actually, yeah, traditionally the getting the tubal ligation has been either cutting or removing a piece of the fallopian tube or putting a ring or another device to help block the fallopian tube. Now, almost always for patients that want that form of birth control, I counsel them about doing the bilateral salpingectomy, completely removing the fallopian tube and decreasing their risk of fallopian tube and ovarian cancers. So it is interesting, though, that this form of birth control, there's a lot of misconceptions, I feel, about when someone says, I want you to tie my tubes, that they think either it's something we can do in the office or they don't have to undergo anesthesia. (laughs) But it is, you know, it's definitely a surgery. So it is very effective, but it comes with risks of undergoing general anesthesia, undergoing an abdominal surgery as well. Yeah, and the risk of regret, which is higher in younger women. So Mm -hmm. we would have patients who've had like five or six children by a young age and maybe they're like 22 or 23 even though we're traditionally counseled to kind of maybe try to give a patient like that not a tubal ligation and try to steer them towards like a reversible form Mm -hmm. of birth control there's indications for these forms at all like any you know a diverse age group but it is permanent Mm -hmm. Um, there are people that will try to sell you on this tubal reversal business and I feel like it's a waste of money because it yes is never effective but like I think if you go to the DR the Dominican Republic you can have your tubal ligation reversed but it's not always effective and they take your money so be absolutely sure that you want to have a tubal ligation before you do it but then it's really effective but yes one thing when you I, somebody says they want a tubal ligation or they want a salpingectomy or that procedure I tell them that if you do decide you want to be pregnant you will need to use fertility specialist and that is not it'll likely will not be covered by insurance because you already had this one procedure so yeah you have to get IVF or in vitro fertilization and have like an embryo made in a lab and then placed into your uterus basically because mm-hmm. there's no fallopian tube to take your egg from the ovary to the uterus. And it's not cheap. Yeah. The other thing is tubal ligations or salpingectomy can be done at the time of a C-section. Yes. Or other surgeries too. So keep that in mind. I don't know if you could convince anyone to do it if you go to the OR for like a gallbladder surgery or an appendectomy, but you could always ask. Yeah. <laughs> sure, why not? But yeah, it's, it's true. And now I think I appreciate trying to do if you have to go in and put somebody under anesthesia and have to do a surgery that's in the same geographical region (laughs) because we know so much about the benefits of removing the tubes once you're done using them for reproduction you know why not try to do both at the same time yeah so that's the deal on hopefully most of the forms of birth control the most common ones at least um we want to go through absolute contraindications so reasons that some of these birth control methods may not be for you so patients who have a personal history of a blood clot meaning like in their leg 
leg or in their lung or a stroke should not use forms of birth control that have estrogen. Similarly, obese women who smoke who have high blood pressure shouldn't use a birth control pill like over age 35. Is that still the recommendation? Yeah, over 35. Yeah, so it's good. smoking increases your risk of having a blood clot or like a cardiovascular issue and these estrogen containing products slightly increase that risk. Even if you personally haven't had a history of a blood clot, if you have several family members who maybe have had strokes or what we call a DVT or PE, which is the clot in the leg or the clot in the lungs, then you may have like an inherited increased risk of clotting and maybe you should talk to your doctor before using an estrogen containing pill. That being said, even people who have a contraindication to estrogen forms can use things like the IUD and have reliable contraception. Yeah, the IUD can be really helpful for patients who have other medical problems too. Uh, what are some other contraindications? It's interesting. So there are some great apps that we as OBGYNs use um, that the CDC has put out because I am sometimes surprised to hear that, um, you know, I had a patient with Crohn's disease who I didn't realize that they're not supposed to be on estrogen containing contraceptives and I had no idea. So, so it's good we have those resources and know where to find that information. Exactly. And, you know, always just talk to your doctor and we know how to find the right information. Yeah. Those are probably the bigger, the bigger contraindications. Yeah. That are estrogen sensitive tumors. So, you know, that's typically what we say, but I think that the field of breast cancer risk and contraception is historically been leaning towards that some forms increase your risk of breast cancer. But I think knowing the more recent data, that's probably less likely to be true. But birth control isn't contraindicated. Well, we use some forms of progestin birth control like IUDs sometimes for women with endometrial cancer but Mm -hmm. those are like really specific cases so that would be something that would be managed by a GYN oncologist. Okay so let's get to our myth busting section. First of all tell me Dr. Thiva which forms of birth control prevent STDs and which ones don't? Specifically just tell us which ones don't so so all of our listeners know. Yeah most forms of birth control are not going to protect against STDs. The one that does are really barrier methods, we call them, or condoms. So that is what is going to protect against STDs. Taking the pills doesn't, using an IUD doesn't. So it's important that you check in with yourself, check in with your partner, and are not only trying to prevent pregnancy if that's what you want, but also you're protecting yourself against diseases. Yeah, and like if you're on the pill to prevent pregnancy, but you have a partner and you need barrier contraception, you can use both. You know what I mean? You can use more than one. You can use any of these forms of contraception plus condoms to help prevent STDs. So a lot of patients think that the birth control pill causes them to gain weight. What do you say to them about that? Yeah, I that's something that people say and it's not, you know, as we know or we try to tell patients that weight gain is product of eating and calories and exercise and the pills themselves will not cause weight gain. Yeah, some really high dose progesterones will increase your appetite. Yes. And some different combination pills may make you feel like a little more bloated, but usually switching between those pills helps. Yeah. It's important to know that the IUD is definitely, definitely weight neutral. I mean, probably won't give you those symptoms of bloating, but sometimes the pills can. Uh, What about antibiotics in birth control pills? What's the deal with that? Like I have friends who say, oh, I'm a product of my mom who was on the pill and got antibiotics and no one told her and then she got pregnant with me. Yeah. I think that's a common misconception that taking antibiotics and the pill at the same time highly decreases their efficacy, but it's, Yeah, it's actually not true. Yeah. There's some antibiotics that decrease the efficacy of birth control pills, but they're not common antibiotics. They're like antibiotics that we use for tuberculosis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So normal like doxycycline or other tetracyclines do not decrease the effectiveness of birth control pills. But what 
does decrease the effectiveness of birth control pills is not taking it at the same time every day or skipping a dose. So if you're not sure, you know, you can ask your pharmacist, but even there's pharmacists that tell patients that they can't take birth control pills and antibiotics at the same time, but that's actually not true. Okay, first of all, do you have to have kids to have an IUD placed? No, now with all the different types of IUDs, the different sizes of them, that is not true. So you don't have to be um, Paris, you can be a nulliparous woman, meaning that you've never been pregnant and have the IUDs placed. It also doesn't increase your risk of infection. And sometimes in women who have pelvic inflammatory disease, it's diagnosed when they have an IUD in place. We don't even remove the IUD. We keep the IUD in and treat their infection. As long as they get better, the IUD can actually stay in, which yeah. I feel like is a common misconception. We do usually test you for STDs when we place an IUD just to make sure there's no other already ongoing infection, but the risk of infection is not increased with an IUD. Yeah. Another important thing is when can you start having unprotected sex after having the IUD placed? And it depends on where in your cycle the IUD is placed, but I think those guidelines have changed. I think you have to use a barrier method for seven days. Yeah, usually I tell people because it's hard to know. I, I really am surprised and respect people who know exactly their body and their <laughs> cycle and when they're ovulating because um, I don't even myself. And <laughs> But usually I tell everyone seven days just to be 100%. Mm -hmm. With the copper IUD, you don't have to wait any time. Yeah. The copper IUD actually is a form of emergency contraception as well and you don't have to wait any time to have intercourse. Yeah, if you're switching from the birth control pill to an IUD also you can kind of continue your birth control pill until you get through that seven days too or you can just abstain or use a condom during those seven days. I think those were the biggest contraindications and myths that we wanted to bust. So just like a history of a blood clot is a contraindication to the combined birth control pill, certain types of migraines can also be a contraindication. So patients who have migraines with aura, which is where you get some funny symptoms before your migraine mm -hmm. hits you like vision changes or smells or numbness or tingling shouldn't use combined birth control pills which is the estrogen plus the progesterone form because it can increase your risk of stroke so we try to avoid those forms Okay, Dr. Theva, I think that about sums up our little 411 on birth control pills. I think so too. If any of our listeners write in, I may bring you back so that we can do some more myth busting. Yes. I love myth busting. So how was your first podcasting experience? It was good. You know, it was actually a lot less stressful than I thought it was going to be. Okay, good. I'm glad that nobody can uh, see me and it's just a... Uh... <laughs> I know. You may not know this, but I'm actually in my pajamas right now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thanks for tuning in to our Real Women's Health podcast where we tackled all of the common misconceptions about birth control methods and reviewed the most common forms. So I hope that all of you guys now feel empowered to make an educated decision about either starting birth control or switching birth control methods and now you can know the real tea. And maybe not everything that you read on the internet is true. And so it's important to always back your reading and your data up with real science. So that's that's what we're here for. We're here for you. <laughs> okay, thanks for tuning in to the Real Women's Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and this is Dr. Mina Thiva. Dr. Mina Thiva, say it with pride. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, here with my best friend. No, you're one of my best friends. I don't want them to get confused. I'm Dr. <laughs> I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas here with one of my best friends, Dr. Mina Thiva, who is one of my co-residents at Women and Infants Hospital, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm actually in her home right now. I came here specifically to make her do this. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise, Dr. Thiva. Anytime. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the Real Women's Health Podcast. For questions or comments, you can email me at realwomenshealth.com 
at gmail.com. For more women's health information, you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Kristen Rojas MD. That's at K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-O-J-A-S-M-D. As a reminder, all information, content, materials for informational purposes only is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. Please do not stop your current birth control method, change any of your medications, stop or start any medications without first talking to your own doctor. Regarding this talk, I do not have any relevant financial or commercial relationships to disclose. Until next time, 